I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. And we've got a really fun one for you today. Michael Shulman is a writer living in New York City. His first book, Her Again, Becoming Meryl Streep, about the actress's artistic coming of age in the 70s, was a New York Times bestseller. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker. And his new book is called Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Maris. Oh, my gosh. There's so much to discuss. I, I think where I want to start is I, I'm getting the impression, Michael, that perhaps the Academy Awards are not based on merit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, uh, I don't know. Ask Andrea Riseborough. Amazing. I didn't realize, I guess, until I read the book, how much it really does kind of resemble politics in the way that voting happens, that campaigning happens. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like presidential campaign, there's a whole cottage industry of strategists and publicists and people running campaigns basically year round. And to draw out the metaphor, in presidential campaigns, you have the caucuses and the primaries, and in the Oscars, you have the Toronto Film Festival and the BAFTAs and the Golden Globes. The Golden Globes are like Super Tuesday, I guess. You know, and then in, in politics, you have like candidates going to like the county fair in Iowa, I guess not no longer Iowa, but New Hampshire or South Carolina and, you know, having to talk with voters. And in the Oscar race, they go to the Santa Barbara Film Festival and receive an honorary award, or they go to a screening in, in New York City and, and, and go to a cocktail party and sit on a panel and answer questions. So there, there are just a ton of factors that go into what gets attention and what gets into the quote unquote conversation. And it means that, you know, a lot of great movies 
get left out of the conversation. What's amazing about this Andrea Riseborough thing is that it kind of short circuited that whole system. And yeah. you saw that one actress with a few really well-placed influential A-list friends was able to sort of circumvent that all. And I don't know if there's like a political, like who's a candidate who just kind of used social media and came out of nowhere. It would be, it would be like that. Imagine if like a presidential candidate just didn't have any money and just used like, just had like a bunch of really cool friends who just Instagrammed on their behalf. And then they became like a presidential candidate. Incredible. And I also, I, I think I like kind of understood this, but not until I read your book did I realize that the Academy was founded partially as a way for producers to come together and uh, be anti-labor. Yes. Uh, yes. This is the uh, the anti-labor secret history of the of the Academy. I mean, it's not that secret, but basically the Academy was formed in 1927 by these uh, 36 founding members who were a cross-section of the powerful, most powerful people in silent era Hollywood. It was the brainchild of Louis B. Mayer, who was the head of MGM, a very powerful man. And their early rhetoric had so much, uh, it was very sort of utopian and high flown. It was all about how they were going to create harmony in the industry and like lift up the the art form of motion pictures, which all sounds really great. And they sort of, and, and they were believers in those things. But there were some undercurrents beneath that that were, are a little more cynical. One of them was that there were signs that uh, the actors, writers and directors might start forming unions. And uh, that was a, a direct threat to people like Louis B. Mayer. And so the harmony that they spoke of took the form of the Academy, like resolving labor disputes and negotiating contracts. And so keeping everyone happy with this system that was fundamentally very tilted and exploitative. And it kind of worked because they sort of held off Actors' Equity, which was trying to come in from New York and and Actors' Equity was for stage actors on Broadway, but they were sort of making inroads to Hollywood. The Academy basically displaced them for five years until SAG was formed uh, during the Depression. And then SAG sort of went to war with the Academy. And then the other kind of underlying thing that was happening was this huge PR problem for Hollywood, this huge image problem, because in the 20s, there were all these salacious scandals, one after the other, like the trials of uh, Fatty Arbuckle and the murder of William Desmond Taylor and all these things. And so then as now there was a culture war in the country and there was a, a conservative religious element in the country that had been really behind prohibition. And they decided that the movies were now the big corrupting evil, evil yeah. in, 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 uh, in America. And they were pushing for censorship. They saw Hollywood as this cesspool of sin. You know, this is why the production code was created, the Hayes office, to sort of like self-censor and put a good good, good spin on things and make sure that there was no sin in the movies, regardless of what was happening in behind the scenes. And, uh, and so the Academy kind of rebranded the whole industry and uh, made it seem like a, a, a much more lofty endeavor. So noble. And then, of course, I love that almost immediately the talkies come and all of a sudden the sound guys are demanding rights and care pay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, the the so what was so interesting about year one, like I, I have t 11 chapters in the book that you need to go into a single year or a single sort of category even that was like juicy and tell some larger story of cultural change. 
in uh, movies or in American life or in the Oscars. And year one was on like incredible shifting ground. It was like a moment. It was nine, the, the the awards took two years for the Academy to actually get around to. It was they were kind of an afterthought at first, but they finally had their first awards in 1929. And it was a moment of com complete upheaval in the industry because the talkies had arrived. And the balance of power was shifting. Uh, all these actors were getting sort of thrown out of the industry or because they had the wrong voices and new people were coming in. And it was it was just very destabilizing. And as anyone who has seen uh, the uh, Singing in the Rain knows, or probably fewer people, Babylon. But anyway, so the first awards, they had to give the jazz singer, the seminal talkie, a, a special honorary award because it couldn't even compete with the nominees, which were all silent movies, it like didn't even belong in the same category of thing. And then by the next year, all of the nominees had sound. So uh, it was just this also year one they had it was the first and only year they had uh, an award for best title writing, meaning like yeah. the intertitles in a, a sound picture. I mean, a, in a silent picture. So this guy, Joseph Farnham, has the distinction of being the only winner only. of ti best title writing. Love that. And it's it's kind of incredible looking at Hollywood now. Like, yes, there are cyclical problems that you uh, revisit over and over again in this book. But Hollywood is so, so unionized, at least. And the Academy seems to be fairly powerful still. How, how, do, how did that happen? Well, basically, in the 1930s, these guilds, became very powerful very quickly. This was the labor movement of the 30s, uh, which the whole country was wrapped up in during the Depression and under uh, FDR. And so uh, SAG formed and the Screen Directors Guild, the Screen Writers Guild, they all came together fairly rapidly in the 30s. And they hated the Academy because the Academy, they thought, was the company union. It was like this fake way of... Uh, just sort of undermining them and 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 giving the appearance of negotiation and fairness, but it was really just run by the producers. They weren't wrong about that, but it really got ugly. And these guilds would direct their members to resign on mass from the academy. And then they would even go as far as boycotting the Oscars. And so it became this all out, it's either you or us. And the reason why that war ended is because Frank Capra was the uh, director of the the president of the academy of course the famous director and he loved the academy he loved the oscars he loved winning oscars he was a real fan of the whole thing and he realized that if the academy kept on trying to be the labor mediator in hollywood it would just it would be the death of this organization so he just decided we won't do that anymore and so by the end of the 30s the academy had just stopped doing anything related to labor or negotiating or anything uh, economic in the industry. And they kept the Oscars, which were the only thing they did that everyone seemed to like. Yeah. And you mentioned Frank Capra, and I was fascinated by your portrayal of him. I think it's one of the themes in the book, it seems, is the idea of who is establishment is always mm. changing. New people come in and then and then they sort of age into their uh, Right. Like 
people start as upstarts and then they end as the, the establishment who's sort of defending their turf. And that happens with a couple of people in the book, like Steven Spielberg is in the 70s chapter as the director of Jaws in his 20s. And then by the 90s chapter, he is like the the, the heavyweight who's has Saving Private Ryan. And he's sort of under assault by these the, the forces of Weinstein. But yeah, I mean, Frank Capra, he came to America as an immigrant from, from Italy, totally impoverished, kind of uh, pulled himself up and became a, a, a hit director. Uh, I mean, a lot of this is sort of in his autobiography, the, the name above the title, he sort of tells his life story as if it's a Frank Capper movie. Like you feel like you're watching, you know, Mr. Deeds goes to town or it's a wonderful life. Everything is a little snappy and a little like feel good. And so his, I found it really interesting to just sort of look at how he saw himself and he wanted that Oscar so badly because he realized that the Academy was the Brahmins, as he put it, of Hollywood. And he was this Italian immigrant, come from nothing guy who wanted to infiltrate the establishment and become it. And he wound up not only winning a bunch of Oscars in the 30s, but becoming the Academy, becoming the leadership of it, almost like single-handedly, just him. Yeah, that, uh, incredible. And 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 then you also talk about the all of the young and exciting filmmakers of the 60s, 70s, who in, in recent years when Academy membership has changed, have become the old fuddy-duddies. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the birth of the new Hollywood is a, is a big phase in the, the sort of area in the late 60s through the mid-70s-ish when you had like, the rise of Scorsese and Coppola and Altman and all these people, these very rambunctious uh, auteur directors who came around in a moment when the studios sort of didn't know how to talk to young people. The generation gap of the uh, of the late 60s was a very wide gap. And so these filmmakers basically had a lot of control. They they had a lot of power because the studios were a bit at a loss, and they they it was this famous sort of moment of revolution in in film. And you get amazing movies out of that, like uh, Midnight Cowboy and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But then it's so interesting to sort of see the wheel turn. And in the Oscar So White era, you have those that sort of generation now older and established, and sort of feeling very aggrieved by the idea of diversifying the Academy membership. Not all of them, obviously, but, you know, it it, it was a generational war once again, and they were on the other side of it. I was fascinated to learn about the role that Candace Bergen played in in getting out, recruiting some of the youngsters in the the 60s. Tell me a little bit about that. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I mean, gosh, I love Candace Bergen. She's she's amazing. I mean, so I grew up with her on Murphy Brown and only learned a little bit later in life that she had been this starlet and sort of it girl in like the late 60s, early 70s. And of course, she did all these great movies like Carnal Knowledge. But anyway, I at some point, got found this this correspondence in Gregory Peck's files at the Academy Library. Incredible. And basically the 22 or 3 year old Candace Bergen in 1969 was writing to Gregory Peck who was the president of the Academy telling him that the Academy is basically full of antiquities who are gumming up the the works and you need to reach out to 
some hip young people like my friends and her friends were like Dennis Hopper and <laughs> Peter Fonda, like the guys who made Easy Rider. Like she was perfectly positioned to be this bridge because she was a Nepo baby, as we'd say now. She was indeed, you know, she was a child of Hollywood. Her father was the famous ventriloquist Edgar Bergen, but she was this, she had this sort of, she was young and she was sort of had this, uh, this inroad with uh, the counterculture people. And she realized that none of those people cared about the Academy Awards and they weren't reflected and the, they weren't in the Academy. So he wrote, she wrote to Gregory Peck and said, can I go and recruit some of my friends? And he said, yeah, please do it. And you just see there, sort of, they didn't really know each other very well. They sort of knew each other as acquaintances, but you see in these letters, just like that, these two opposite sides of this cultural divide and generational divide kind of like collaborating together on how to make the Academy less uh, out of date. You mentioned Gregory Peck's files. I, I mean, tell me a little bit about the research required in putting this book together, because I, I imagine it's some original reporting. It's a lot of looking in archives. It's a lot of books that you've had to read. Yeah, I mean, first of all, it took me four years. Which it was, it I was a, a little over a year late with it, in part because I have my day job at the New Yorker, which keeps me very busy. So it was a long process, and the concept of the book was to again just like have these like episodic chapters where it wasn't every year of the Oscars, but I just chose like a dozen or so and went deep into them. But I quickly realized that I had, in order to tell those stories, I had to feed my brain with everything I could about each era and had to learn a lot. So in terms of research, it, it, it completely, uh, it was so different one era to the next, because of course, if you're doing 1929 or 42, everyone's dead. Um, and that involved a lot of reading books and biographies and going to the Academy Library and the Library of Performing Arts in New York and uh, trying to find, go through, going through archives. And, and that was really fun. I love doing that. And then sort of as the chronology got later, more people were alive. At first, maybe it was someone's offspring, like Judy Holliday's son I interviewed, or mm -hmm. Dalton Trumbo's daughter, Gregory Peck's sons. And then by the end of the book, you know, it's about 2017, and everyone's around, and everyone's working in Hollywood still. And it's it's sort of like reporting a, a magazine piece that is about the industry today. So yeah, it's it sort of, it's shifted. I actually wrote the chapters out of order. So it's kind of just mm. to keep myself on my toes. I didn't, I didn't write it chronologically. I, I just, I would skip around and do like a more modern chapter and then go back to an older era and then go back to more modern and then kind of put them all in order for the book. I love that. And it, it gives me license then to, to skip to 1989 because I want to <laughs> hear you talk about Alan Carr, who I knew very little about and exactly what he did for, for the Oscars, which seems kind of legendary. Yeah. OK, this was the probably the most fun chapter to work on. Uh, it's about the 1989 ceremony, which is notorious, uh, usually referred to as the worst Oscars ever, mostly because it opened with this uh, gigantic 11 minute like splashy production number that included notoriously Rob Lowe singing Proud Mary with a woman dressed as Snow White in a replica of the Coconut Grove with dancing cocktail tables. Like it's just completely campy and over the top and insane. And I think really fun. But at the time it was just, it was just derided. And 
the man behind all of this was Alan Carr, who was known at the time for a few things. One is being the producer of Grease. Uh, another is he produced La Cage Faux on Broadway. But he'd also had some misfires like Can't Stop the Music, the, the, the movie of the village people. And he was also known for being very flamboyant, which is what they how they wink, wink that people were gay at the time. He was like flamboyantly gay wore incredible caftans and threw these like wild parties at his house. But he wanted his whole life to produce the Oscars. And when he finally got the chance, he put his name absolutely everywhere. Everyone knew these were the Alan Carr Oscars. And he was making these big promises that it's going to be bigger, glitzier, better, more glamorous, blah, 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 blah. And then when it was so schlocky, everyone knew where to point the finger. And so it really became this Icarus story of like, this guy who flew too close to the Oscar sign and it wound up <laughs> really ruining his career and and his life. He yeah. it, it was a devastating blow to him. And in the end, I found this story to be kind of a tragedy as like campy and crazy as it is in the details. There was also something at, at its heart really sad about it because it was about someone who wanted something so badly and then just became ostracized when it didn't go well. And yet it seems like he has allowed for many careers to flourish at like E doing red carpet reports. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the things that he did contribute was beefing up the red carpet and the fashion for the show. And the the red carpet had not been such a thing. There was usually in, in old Academy Awards, you see like there's five minutes of footage at the beginning of people coming, arriving. And they say, there's Goldie Hawn, the star, of blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but, you know. Carr realized that it could be more of a show and that over the course of the 90s ballooned and ballooned and ballooned and then you had Joan Rivers uh, doing her coverage for E and it just like got bigger and bigger and now it's basically its own show that is as long and as big as the Oscars itself. Indeed. Tell me a little bit about writing your to Harvey's chapter because I if it took over four years that, that things must have been changing and yet he sounds like an aggressive son of a bitch the entire time. So. Yeah, I've been working on this book so long that I actually first wrote the book proposal before the Me Too movement, like before the scandal. But he was still in it. Like, okay, this is Harvey Weinstein. You can't tell the story of the Academy Awards without talking about Harvey Weinstein in the 90s and how he revolutionized Oscar campaigning in this way that was, that's what he used to be infamous for. Yeah. As the <laughs> guy who would like bully everyone into giving him Oscars. That was the old story about Harvey. Then the Me Too scandal happened and I immediately thought, oh gosh, like how do I, how do I do that? Like, I don't want to just tell the same old story about Harvey now that there's a much more important one. And I realized that in a way they were two sides of the same coin in that he, Harvey used his prowess, his perceived prowess at the Oscar game to sort of as a shield so they just so that people were would be in awe or fear of him and in the in the shadows he could be a serial rapist and there was a moment in like 2002 or so when people really thought he was out like his, his he suddenly sputtered and there was this really uh damning new yorker profile of him by canaletta all about how everyone just hated him and he was this uh, browbeating asshole and but still, people were not reporting on what his behavior toward women and his crimes. And um, 
and he bounced back through the Oscars. That was the year that Chicago won Best Picture. And he was basically giving quotes to the press, like everyone six months ago thought I was out, but I'm back. And like, then he was back. And it took another 20 years or whatever to, or 15 years to actually expose him. Yeah. And I just, I I constantly think of, I think I was really just starting to get into watching the Oscars when Gwyneth wore her pink dress and mm-hmm. uh, and the revelations from her alone are very upsetting. Yeah. I I love that the final chapter, I imagine like you were already going into production or close to it. And then... <laughs> And then the slap happens. Oh my gosh. Michael, how do you deal with that? Okay, so here's what happened. This was amazing. So I turned in the book to my editor at HarperCollins, Gail Winston, last February. But I was really, like, I sort of wrote the the uh, epilogue, the, the, the afterward, very quickly at the end and sort of, like, was trying to draw some grand conclusions. And, like, I wasn't really happy with it. To be honest, I was like, I'm going to come back to this in the revision and I don't know, I'll have to figure out something. And then I go to the Oscars to cover them for the New Yorker. And I was there for the slap. Like I was in the balcony and I ended the night at the Vanity Fair party. And right before I left at like 1230 a.m., I decided to take one last look at the dance floor and I go to the dance floor. I feel some like some presence behind me and spin around. And there's Will Smith dancing with his Oscar like and they turn the DJ turns on getting jiggy with it. And I just a million phones go up and start recording as this man who has just like had a breakdown on live TV and assaulted someone and sort of like it just written himself this very weird new chapter in Oscar history was just dancing to his own song with a gigantic smile on his face, holding this Oscar like he was like nothing had happened. And it was such this dark, surreal, uh, just completely weird image. And I was immediately like, oh, well, this is how I end the book. I mean, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Will yeah. Smith, for giving me this like bizarre ending. So I actually just on my next revision, I just rewrote the ending. And fortunately, I had time to do that because I kind of had to include this left. I actually subtitled the afterword getting jiggy with it just so that people knew you know when you read table of contents you'll get there for sure and 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 i imagine that last february you thought perhaps like the the last big scandal would have been the envelope yeah i mean the last big chapter of the book is called the envelope and it's about that envelope mix up with uh moonlight and la la land i mean when the slap happened people kept telling me oh you're gonna have to add a chapter your to your book and i was like <laughs> no I, I'm already 14 <laughs> months late. This thing is done. It's it's so late, so late. We it's done. But I did like write in a sort of my account of that night being at the slap and kind of got it in there at the end. I love it. Before I ask you for book recommendations, I'm wondering if you have any predictions for this year's Oscars. Not in terms of who will win and who will lose, but like what will we see at the show. Huh. Well, you know, there's a new leadership at the Academy, and I think they, they're they really trying to not annoy their own members as much as the last few years have. So like last year, there was this whole hubbub over like shifting the sort of the, some of the smaller so-called smaller categories to a pre-show and not having it live on the show. And that got everyone up in arms. And the the new CEO and president of the Academy have said they're, they're going to restore them. So I think it's maybe going to be a sort of more 
traditional crowd pleasing uh, Oscars. I mean, I, I don't know. I, everyone is constantly talking about how to fix the ceremony and because the ratings have been on a slide and I'm like, just do what you want to do. Just make it good. Like, I feel like the, the problem is kind of bigger than the Oscars. Like it's a, the problem is like, it's hard to get the whole country to watch a single show on TV anymore. And you know, the movies are not as central in our, no one's going to movies anymore unless it's like avatar or Marvel or something. So the, there's some bigger structural problems that are troubling the Oscars lately. And I, I, I think the the answer is not to keep futzing with the ceremony or try to like make it cool. Like it always feels like it's your math teacher trying to rap yeah, or something. Yeah. Oh, about long division. I'm just like, do you know, make it great, make it a fun show. So I'm hoping they do that. And I think I think their spirit is in the in the right place now. That's great. I, I can't wait to see Michael Oscar Wars. What a what a book. Before we go. Can you please recommend some books for us? Yes, I have an I have something old and something new. Perfect. So for this book, I read just a ton of books from throughout the history of Hollywood. And the one that just will always have a place in my heart is The Lonely Life by Betty Davis. Uh, it was her memoir from 1962. And it is just incredible. First of all, Betty Davis is always in a fight with someone. So her life, her telling her own life story is just one fight after another and it's written in this like betty davis voice that is so incredible like the first line of the lonely life is i have always been driven by some distant music a battle hymn no doubt for i have been at war from the beginning <laughs> it's like i love that it's okay. so great and if anyone is sort of a lover of celebrity memoirs or old hollywood books just you got to read the lonely life it's so much fun and then something new is this book that just came out this month uh, called All the Beauty in the World by Patrick Bringley. This is actually someone I used to work at in the events department at The New Yorker. And then I remained there and Patrick left around 2008 or so. And he, his brother was dying of cancer and he wanted just a change in his life. And so he got a job as a security guard at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and spent 10 years there and has now written a book about his time as a security guard at the Met. And it is just a wonderful, it's just a gem of a book. It's about grief and art and just the particulars of this really weird, unique job of having to stand in a gallery for hours and hours and hours surrounded by the great masterpieces of of, of the world. Amazing. I can't wait to read that too. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you, Maris. It's been so much fun. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 